this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, Jesus, Who Are You and What Are You Doing is the series that we've been on. And particularly, I want to see what Jesus did and I misspelled about. I knew I'd made a mistake or two, so there's a good one. Get it out of the way right away. About sin. All right. So I do have to review. I get a lot of grief about reviewing, and I get a lot of praise for it, so I don't know really what, what the story is. But I want to, I want to catch up if you, uh, if you haven't been here, and I want to remind us if we have. And I do sort of semi-apologize because this is a fairly in-depth, it's only three little slides, but it's pretty in-depth. So the eternal logos, very God and creator all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being. That word is genomai, through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So that was the first of who is Jesus that we looked at. And then further down, the logos in Adam and creation, and the incarnation is the flesh. The word became, it's the same word, genomai. Uh, Genomai means to become by a process. It's intentional, and it's it's a, a creative process. So the word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as the only begotten from the Father, and uh, full of grace and truth. So I want to just break down some of these words because I want you to feel the relational aspect of it. So the Logos is the visible expression of the inner heart and mind and the logic of God. It's what we talked about in this review, so I'm not going to go into like great depth over it. But if you envision the body of the desires of God, the thoughts of God, the logic of God, the intentions of God, the Logos is the expression of that. And that expression was with God and was God and became flesh. Genomai, as I mentioned, it it means to be made into or to become through an intentional process, a, a kind of a birthing. So it's an intentional thing. Sarks is the infected part of man, the flesh, the meat, the the. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't just become man in the incarnation. He became flesh. That's a big thing. That's a big thing. And again, the became part of that was intentional. It wasn't just a happenstance. I remember early in my my thinking, I was kind of working on the assumption that uh, Jesus became flesh just so he could die. But he became flesh so that he could identify. He became flesh, as we we're going to see a little bit later, about what he did with sin so that he could get a hold of sin. He could take it, carry it, bear it. Um, skenu is the word to tent or to tabernacle. Now, I think this is a super exciting word. So there where it says, and he dwelt, he, he literally tabernacled among us. And so here's what I want you to think about and why I want to emphasize this in the review. To me, the most logical place to go from that word is back into the encampment of Israel, where in spite of all the issues, in spite of the, oh, we don't want to hear your voice, you talk to Moses, talk to us, in spite of all that, in spite of the various failures and judgments and so on, the presence of God was in the midst of the people in the tabernacle. Remember this kind of glory being between the wings of the cherubim on the altar? God has always wanted to be in and with us. Always. Always. And that is 
what this is talking about. So the other interesting little word here is ain. If you look up there where it says among, he has dwelt among us, the word really is in. Now, that creates some interesting possibilities of thought. And uh, the, the vast majority of time that the Greek word ain is used, it means in. And so I think we should give ourselves permission to think about Jesus with the intent of being in humanity, in Israel, in the Gentiles. Remember when we've looked at in the past what the essence of the gospel was, what Paul said, when it pleased God who called me from my mother's womb to reveal Christ in me. This is a huge revelation, and we miss it when we translate that word among, because among is just a temporary uh, in proximity with. Jesus got more into this. The idea of becoming incarnate, the idea of taking on sarks, taking on the broken, the damaged, the infected part of us, the capacity for sin, to take that on. Now, he who knew no sin, he didn't succumb to that. He delivered us from sin. He delivered us from sin. So anyway, I, that, that's why I pointed out. And, and then para is an interesting word. Um, it, it says from, but it literally means, if you go back and look at it, it literally means out from the side of. And I thought, wow. What if, okay, so in my opinion, John is one of the most deliberate gospel writers. He's not just creating a, a, a historic recording like some of them are. And I, I don't devalue Matthew, um, Mark, and Luke either at all. But, but John had a very specific, he was trying to help us see the unseen aspects of God. He was trying to uh, help us see the, the nature. He was trying to help us see things that are difficult to see, the oneness, the, the similarities, the interface, the interaction. And I just, I just think that whole idea that the word para was used is another sign of the relational intentionality of the sun coming into humanity in flesh. And we're going to see you know, what the implications of that are later. So that's slide one. So what is Jesus doing in review? Well, as very God and as the only begotten, he is detailing the Father. He is revealing the Father. We talked about this at some length last week. Uh, scripture says no one has seen God, Theos, okay? No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Theos, now the only begotten is the word monogenous. We'll look at it in a little bit. Who is in, now it's, here it's, it's interesting, it's translated in, but it's the word ace, the bosom of the Father, he, Jesus, has explained him, our unseen God and Father. So uh, last week we pointed out something interesting. John 1.18 says that no one has seen God at any time. John 14, Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now you know him and have seen him. So I know when, when we try to interpret Scripture uh, as, as if it were an encyclopedic text of references. 
you can get in trouble when things seem to contradict one another. But if you understand that it is the revelation of a progressive revelation, then it's true no one has seen God at any time. It's also true that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen him. That's the point. The revelation of the Father is the fundamental task that Jesus embraced in coming into the world, was to reveal the Father. Now, we're going to get tonight into the idea of what Jesus did with sin, because, as we talked about a few weeks ago when we were looking at the gospel, it's, it's really pretty easy in our culture to, if somebody asks you, what's the main thing Jesus did? Well, he, he uh, sacrificed himself for our sin. But the main thing, the consistent thing, and the continuing thing, and we're going to see that tonight, I hope, that he did was reveal the Father. And the reason that we have a problem with sin is because we don't know the Father. We don't see the Father. So here's another one. He's making the Father known with and in love. And this is at the end of John 17. Think about the implications of this. This is an unqualified statement. It's amazing to me. And it's right at the end of a prayer between Jesus and his Father, setting himself up to go to the cross. I mean, there's not a more significant time in ministry or in his life. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them and will make it known. And here's why. So that the love that you loved me with may be in them, and I in them. So one of the things that this verse points out to me, that as a pastor, I want people to think about and understand, and I, I don't think that most of us do. I, th- I encounter people all the time that believe that God loves them. And they might even believe that, yeah, you know, that he, he, he loves them because he's God. He loves them because he's love. He loves them. But I almost never talk to anybody who has the bold confidence in their heart that the Father loves me with the exact same love from the exact same source with the exact same effect that he loves his son, Jesus. That's huge. That's huge. And if you, if you have allowed yourself, and there's no shame in it because I, I understand totally how it happens, but if you allow yourself to think that, uh, that, that God doles out a lesser portion of love for us or a love of an inferior kind, if you go, well, there's no possible way, there's no way that, that the Father can love me the way he has loved his Son eternally. I'm here to tell you that the Scripture says different. And the risk of believing the magnitude and the character and nature of God's love for us is worth taking. It will transform you from the inside, the security, the part in us that knows ourselves and knows how boneheaded we are and how unlovable we can be at times. But we're not the ones that dictate the nature of love. God does. He is the one that is love. And he loves us. 
So I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Okay? All right, so monogenous is an interesting word. Being the only one of its kind in a class or relationship. Now, in the early days of the church, this concept of monogenous caused a lot of problem among groups like the Arians in that they were insisting that this idea, only begotten, meant that Jesus was not eternal and was not one with the Father, but was created, the first of a created being. The church hammered that out for about the first 135, 180 years. The, uh, there's too much evidence that this is a, a different expression. Here's what it means. Jesus is the one and only in relationship to the Father as the begotten one. Now, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in a, in a wonderful and a unique position. It leaves us being gifted the very life, the uniqueness of Jesus. Out of this concept toward humanity is where Paul gets the idea of adoption. Not adoption as a stranger being adopted, but adoption as coming into that which we are. Out of this area is where later in the, in the chapter of 1 John, uh, the uh, first part of the gospel, not the chapter for John, uh, John chapter 1, as many as believe him gave he the power or the right, the, the authority, the exousia, to become children of God, those that believe on his name. Not to become children of God because they started as something else, to become what they were originally envisioned as and seen as. We didn't start as a tomato plant. We started in the heart of the Father as a child. But we, we our, our development, our knowledge of that, it was arrested by sin. And so Jesus is the only begotten into this. And then there's a couple of other onlys that carry that. He's the firstborn from among the dead in the same way. That's why death doesn't present a final obstacle to us, because we're getting that from him. Okay? All right. The next one, ace, is into as a destination. So this is a beautiful thing, and I want us, I'm going to, if I can, and uh, this is what I was talking to you, Jason, about. I don't know how to get this across. It's a relational thing that is so easy to dismiss. But, so no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in, but, but it, it really should be translated a little bit differently because it's ace, the bosom of the Father, okay? He has explained him. Now, the idea of ace is, is different than in. In is like uh, there's water in this cup. In, ace is like going into the room. So ace speaks of a destination as opposed to the being contained in a, in a place or a thing. So what this is saying to me, anyway, is who is, as the result of moving into the bosom of the Father, he's the one that's sent. The bosom is the heart or the chest. And... Uh, it also depicted in uh, cultures that wear tunics. 
that when you have your belt and the tunic folds over, that's where people, because they didn't have pockets for the most part, it was that fold right there at your belly that you put stuff in and carried it. Uh, it's the, uh, moms carried their, their kids in those kind of arrangements, you know, and so on. So what I see in this, who is in the bosom of the Father, Jesus is bringing us the most intimate kind of knowledge of the Father. The absolutely most intimate kind. It's not just a distant knowledge. It's not just an intellectual knowledge. It, it is an experiential knowledge, but it's an experiential knowledge that literally emanates from him going into the heart, the breast, the chest of the Father. So when Jesus is explaining him or exegeting him, it's the next word there, um, exegomai, he is declaring God in detail. He is explaining him. He is putting him on display. He is revealing him. But the, the, he's, he's revealing him all the way down to the aspect of God's heart. And this is the part that I, I see us dull to in the gospel, is we don't understand that it's not just that Jesus is coming to offer us an opportunity. He's not just coming to offer us a surface knowledge of the Father and the Father's love for us as his children. He is literally from and into the heart of the Father. And he is conveying to us, to you, to me, the Father's heart attitude toward us. A while ago, uh, I ran across a, a lexical explanation of grace, and it really rocked my world. I'd always thought of grace as uh, sort of like the permission to screw up and get away with it, you know, or whatever. I think it was a low Anita uh, lexicon, but it said the benevolent attitude in the heart of a superior to an inferior. The benevolent attitude of the heart. Grace is not just a legal provision for you and I because we have to work our way through sin. Grace is the heart nature, the heart attitude of the Father towards his children. And that's what Jesus absolutely has known throughout all of eternity. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The heart attitude of the Father is what Jesus knows intimately and is sharing with you and I. And that goes back to the idea where he said, Lord, um, that you would be able to love them with the same love you loved me with. And so, anyway, I think that's why this stuff's worth digging in on. All right, here's the, the last one we looked at last week. Uh, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the worlds. This goes back and confirms the role that Jesus played in creation and in the creation of humanity is he's the creator. Again, most of us, I think, uh, if we're not careful in our culture, we'll grow up. And if, when you think in terms of God being the creator, you think you either think of him objectively as God or you think the Father's being the creator. But the scripture is really, really plain. Nothing was made that Jesus didn't, he wasn't the, the, the creative agent in. Nothing. 
And it, it's emphasized twice in the beginning of John. It's emphasized here, same way. Uh, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Um, the word uh, afugasma is radiance or outshining of light, the, uh, the, the, the glory of God, the light of God. Uh, it's from two words, apo and age, from brightness. It can also mean reflection. But the point is, is that all of the brightness of God, all of the glory of God is shining in Jesus. And when you see him, that's why he could say to the disciples, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay. Next one is character. I think that's a cool Greek word. It's uh, a graver, either the person or the tool that sculpts things or that cuts dyes and coin stamps and stuff like that. By implication, it is the engraving or the character on an imprint. It's a figure stamp carved or an exact copy. Hypostasis is uh, broken out of two Greek words, the understanding, the essence, that which supports, like a footing supports a building. It gives definition to the size. It gives shape to it. And there's a lot that goes into it. But, but the nature is what that's talking about. It's the essence of who God is. So when it says that, that he is the exact representation of God's nature, it goes back to the idea of the exact representation of how God feels about you, how he sees you, how he reacts to you. Jesus is exactly who God is. So one of my favorite illustrations of that, you guys know this, I'll just repeat it because I like it, is the woman caught uh, in adultery and presented at the temple. We know that God hates adultery. I mean, that's pretty clear. It's in the Decalogue. We also know, as surely as we do by reading that, we know how he feels about somebody caught in adultery, somebody victimized by it, somebody perpetrating it, because there was a woman in one of those categories. And what did the father do? Through Jesus. Jesus said, uh, these aren't my words. They're the Father working in me. The Father protected her. The Father refused to condemn her. And the Father even protected those that would be willing to condemn her. The dynamics in that story reveal the nature of the Father because Jesus is the exact representation of the essence of who the Father is. Now, that creates a little bit of an issue. Well, yeah, well, how, how should I feel about adultery? Probably you should hate it. How should I feel about people that do it? Well, if it's just an abstract question, you should know that God loves them. If it's somebody who's committed it against you, it might be a little harder to think through. But nevertheless, the reality is Jesus is the exact representation of what's going on in the heart of the Father. And he said, I I only do what I see the Father doing. He's not a freelance operator. He's not flying wild or blind. He is revealing who God is and how he feels about people. Pharaoh is to carry or to continue into a certain state. So it says there that he upholds, he carries everything to the destination. What destination? To the destination that is determined by the Father. We're not on just a loose, random journey. Our destiny, our timing, where we're going as a people, as a body, is it flows from the heart and the intention of the Father. 
uh, Al and I were talking earlier today. He's always with us. He's always working things together for good. He knows. He knows. And that doesn't necessarily make it super easy to understand why one thing or another thing is happening in a certain particular way. But we can always trust two things, that the Father's heart is for us and that Jesus is representing that heart accurately. He's carrying all that, upholds all things by the word, the rhema. This is another relational word. Uh, I know there's a lot of ways you can think about rhema and logos and luleo and all this kind of stuff, but he's still speaking. He's still speaking to you. He's still speaking over us. The Holy Spirit is declaring over us the things that the Father's given the Son. Our lives and the lives of the church, the lives of the body of Christ, are constantly being washed, not just with the written scripture, but with the spoken revelation of the heart and mind of God. And that is something that Jesus and the Holy Spirit continue to do. And it comes from the heart of the Father. That's what's going to get us where we're going. All right, so what did Jesus do with sin? That was the review of who he is. What did he do with sin? The last little line down here uh, that we didn't look at last week in Hebrews is when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Purification. I don't know how your first thoughts are when you think about what Jesus did on the cross. But I know for me, it took a long time for me to discipline my thinking and to think intentionally that Jesus made purification for sin. He didn't just create an opportunity for me to ask forgiveness for it. He didn't just create a legal transaction whereby I can be forgiven if, and then a string of interactive conditions. He made purification for sin. And one of the ways to think about that, I think, again, is to go ahead and put ourselves back in the, in the nation of Israel and what the, the atoning-type offerings were for. They, they were designed. Now, they weren't able to get into the soul and the conscience. Scripture's pretty clear about that in a minute. They weren't able to get there. But what they were doing is they were showing cleansing. You weren't carrying the, 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 the filth of your violation. You weren't carrying the guilt of your violation anymore. I believe they were speaking forward to what Jesus was going to do. But nevertheless, it, it, it's, it's this idea of, of cleansing, purification, purging. All right, so this, this word means to, to purge or to purify. And it's cleansing from ritual or legal impurity and guilt, but it's also cleansing and purging from inward pollution and shame. I don't know if I got the next. Yeah, here we go. This will explain that a little bit more. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Okay, so let's just try to think through this. Here in the book of Hebrews, uh, the, the writer is, is talking about the process that has transformed our relationship with sin. 
in our relationship with, with the household of God. So Jesus didn't just go into a, a place made by hands, a shadow of the future time. And this is in contrast to the, to the high priest that once a year went in for the sacrifice of atonement. And he went in with the blood of bulls and goats and animals. But Jesus went literally into what that picture on earth in Israel represented in heaven. And remember, uh, Moses was said that he had gotten a, a pattern, that it was given to him as a pattern. Well, the origin of that pattern was heaven. Now, I don't know what it looks like up there. You know, uh, might have got some glimpses of it in a couple ascensions or something. But the origin is the altar in heaven, the throne in heaven, the, the, the worship in heaven. We get glimpses of it in Revelation. Jesus went not into a temple down here, but there, the place, the altar, the place of sacrifice. Not a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Now, this is an interesting line. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. Why? So, Holly, this is one of the things we were exploring on Tuesday past. Jesus is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. We have a super hard time understanding how that can be because we live stuck in time. All of our references are linear. All of our references come one after another, one before another. But the, the revelation of Scripture declares that Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And so I think that's why the writer made this point. Otherwise, he would have had to have been the lamb slain many times since the foundation of the world. Just like the high priest had to bring in blood Many times, every year. And if we keep going on, it, it, it talks about how that was a reminder that, that this was still an ongoing thing. But uh, so it says, often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own, otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We're going to look at a couple of these words, consummation of the ages and that concept, and it's hard to wrap your head around, but I, I want us to try. And he has been manifest or shown to put away sin. Now, just ask yourself, do I think in terms of sin being put away by Jesus? Or do I think in terms of sin being covered, somehow being accommodated for something. Put away is a pretty strong word. It's a pretty strong word. Dan and I have been talking about, about why it's so difficult for believers in our culture to believe that they are already forgiven before they maybe even know that they need to be or ask for it. It's because we're stuck in time. It's because we view everything by time. And when somebody tells us there is something that has transcended time, 
that preceded time and created a permanent effect, it, it, it tweaks your noodle, you know? You have, to, you have to exercise faith to believe that. But he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait, await him. That last line is, is one that points out to me how far afield or how difficult it is for us to think about the finished nature of the work of Christ. Um, I, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, depictions of the return of Christ being one that is entirely almost focused on sin. He's coming out to separate the sheep from the goats. He's coming back to lay waste. He's coming back to slay enough people that the blood runs to the bridles of the horses. There's a lot of work we could do trying to understand how to look at those scriptures, what they're saying, what they're depicting. But the reality is what it's saying here is that he is coming a second time without reference to sin. Why? How? Is he just going to forget about it? No. He's put it away. He's done. I had a friend who uh, was, was trying to come up with some illustrations, and, and she's working hard at it. It was good. But uh, we got talking about if somebody vomited on the floor, and that vomit rec- represented the corruption, the sin, the sickness, and all that stuff. Is what Jesus did to cover that? In other words, throw a throw rug over it, but it's still barf underneath? Or was it to cleanse it, to remove it, to put it away? And I encourage us to start thinking that the work he did on the cross is not a cover-up. It's not a masking. It's a cleansing. When he made purification for sin... Not cover, purify. And, and, and so without doing any disrespect to the atoning sacrifices annually in Israel and the other sacrifices, even though they were limited to doing the sins, it says in Hebrews, that were committed in the body and they couldn't clean the mind, Jesus is the one that can clean the whole picture. And God released forgiveness but it was, again, it was a forgiveness based on the lamb slain, not by the priest, but the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. His intentionality, his purpose. Okay? So, last part of this, let's look at a couple of these things. Uh, he would have needed to suffer since the foundation of the world, but at the consummation of the ages, do you think of what we read about Jesus on the cross do you think of that as the consummation of the ages, or are you holding that title, the consummation of the ages, for a future time, time of second coming, time of the return? This writer pointed out that on the cross, that was the consummation of the ages. Now, I don't know what the implication of that is. I'm not saying tomorrow's not important. I'm not saying next year's not important. I'm not saying the second coming's not important. But I am saying that if we allow ourselves to devalue the focal point of history, the focal point of the Father, away from what Jesus did on the cross and what he did in that heavenly realm 
at that altar, we are missing something. We're losing something. Try to understand in my head what you're saying. Okay. So you're saying that if we placed more value on his second coming than what he did on the cross, we're making a mistake. I, I believe we are. Now, okay. that's, that's obviously, if you take that too far, if I take that too far, that's nuts. Okay. Because, I mean, we're supposed to long for his appearing. We're looking for the culmination of a bunch of things in that. Uh, the corruptible will put on the incorruptible. Uh, you know, judgment will finally be expressed as what it really is. Life will finally be expressed as what it is. But, yes, here's what I think the, the mistake can be. If we don't realize, if we put all that off to the future, if we put the emphasis off to the future, we will be tempted to minimize the finished nature of what Jesus did in relationship to sin. And, and therefore, we will still be putting obligations to finish that work of overcoming sin on others or on ourselves. And I think that is a tragic mistake that is perpetrated every single day in the church. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm not trying to minimize the value of what's coming in the end, but sin is not an issue that is waiting until the second coming of Christ to be reconciled. Since you said that, how do you explain the parable of the seven virgins? Uh, I'm not saying that things aren't, I'm not saying that judgment doesn't happen. And I'm not saying that judgment doesn't. Well, you sort mentioned the out. fact that in this, when he appears in the second time, it's not as important as the first time when he actually was. Sacrificed. No, no, I didn't say it wasn't as important. I, I said it's not in reference to sin. His second coming is not in reference to sin. That's what it says right there. Right, but I think it's taken out of context here. The fact is, is if you read the entire chapter or the first few, and that was uh, Hebrew 9, 26 through 28, correct? Uh-huh. Yeah, verse 28, that one. Okay. If you read that, it says, For then most, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away the sin by the sacrifice of himself. They're talking about the end of the world at that point. Mm. And then as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment. So now we're talking about the judgment, Mm -hmm. which is the second coming. Well, and at that point it says, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. That was his first coming. And unto them that look for him shall, and that look for him. In other words, we have to prepare for his second coming. I totally agree. And if we aren't prepared as in the seven virgins, the others will miss the opportunity and heaven will be closed. So our point is this, is to be prepared for that second coming at all costs and know when that second coming comes. And if we aren't prepared, we will lose the option of being saved in the first resurrection. But there is not... Okay, so this is my point, and I I understand where you're coming from. My point is that... The work that Jesus did in regard to sin was finished at that once. I would agree that it was finished on the fact of sin, but do you agree that we all sin and we are all going to be judged based on our sins? He didn't give each one of our sins personally away. He gave away the sins of the world so that we could be saved as Gentiles. But if we aren't saved through salvation... 
we will have no chance of being saved. Didn't didn't Jesus say that there's straight and narrow is the way to yeah. heaven and wise gate to hell and few there be that find it? So no, I, I would, I mean, you know, we're going to have to disagree on this, I think. I don't believe that there is another set of sacrifices for sin. There's the one. The one. Then, then you're saying that salvation is not apparent as John the Baptist had preached and as Jesus was baptized with the Holy Ghost. That is not necessary in your world in order to be saved. No, I'm saying those things are all a part of what was provided for in that. It's not a second, third, and fourth event. Somebody was going to say something. Go ahead. I didn't hear what they Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that we, when we underestimate the finished nature of what this represents, we keep plugging things in that are continuing um, sacrifices for sin, which I, I believe Hebrews is really clear it denies. I don't. I, I know he sacrificed for our sins, but I, 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 I also know that our personal sins we would be judged for. So the sins that he sacrificed were not our sins that we personally sinned by. What sins were they? They were the sins of our forefathers. So then, then all he did was catch the world up at that point. That's where. That's how he allowed the Gentiles to be saved because Gentiles were 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 basically shut out of heaven before that. I don't think there's going to be another trip to the altar in heaven. <laughs> I think to be far and few between to get there. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody else to go up and do it. I think he did it. Well, I no, I, I think it's up to us to receive the Holy Ghost in order to be saved and be part of the sheep. And without it, we would not be part of the sheep, even that he even so that he died for our sins. Most will never see the gates of heaven because of the fact they haven't gone through salvation. Oh, hey, Jeremy. Hey, guys. Yeah, uh, I probably agree with that as well. That seems like the invitation uh, into the sin management dance that that gentleman was talking about, um, that the preparation then is us doing all the right things and not doing all the wrong things. And and uh, um, so that, that seems like the, the traditional view of the church, which is kind of what I wanted to chime in about. Um, I, I, if I'm correct, that a truer view of doctrine uh, from, from the Father's perspective is, is more related to the freshly spoken word, the rhema word of God, and not necessarily the uh, things that we've, we've been taught in the past that have remained doctrine uh, over the years. Uh, Pastor, what you're talking about tonight um, with the, the uh, sort of the rejection of it's a covering of sin uh, and not that, but it is it is actually a, a removal of that. Uh, that's not that's not a rhema word in terms of from the father's perspective. That's probably what he knew all along. Um, but for us, it very well could be. And so it just reminded me, if I'm correct in that um, to to include doctrine, which I'm not to I guess I'd have to admit uh, I'm, I'm pretty sketchy on that right now in my journey anyway. It seems like it's caused more harm than good, but I think there is a place for it. Um, I guess my question, Pastor, is, is would we be better off to view doctrine as a result of, of the, the freshly spoken word that God continually is giving us on a day-to-day basis as he shows us, reveals more to us, 
And from there, then we're able to establish more of those, those, uh, uh, those aspects of our faith that are solid. Does that make sense? You aren't precise about what we're talking about with doctrine is, is that it's like we're just saying, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe, just whatever you most recently heard or something like that, it's going to turn out. But Jesus, this is why I was going through so many scriptures. They're indicating that Jesus was sent to reveal the Father. And in the course of revealing the Father, he is literally carrying the truth that he is revealing. The truth about sin, the truth about salvation, the truth about life, the truth about heaven. He's carrying that to the destination that has been determined beforehand by the Father. He's not just freelancing. He's not just interrupting time. He didn't come down and cut time in half. He was the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world with the intention of that salvation, of that putting away of sin, that atonement, all that happening. And we, we do have to work hard to not dismiss the reality of time. That would be silly, you know, but we also have to work pretty hard to realize that God's intentions precede our experience of them. They precede it. And so, yeah, that is why we need to listen to the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to go. So I don't know how to really frame it in the, in the, the, the thought about doctrine, but doctrine is what men, how men articulate and share the truth of God. Um, and there's very variations in it, and we're subject to our own misinterpretation and various things along those lines, or overinterpretation. But there is a reality behind doctrine, and the reality is what Jesus pulled from the heart of the Father and brought to earth, and. That's what I want us to, to consider. And that's what I want us to make him the centerpiece of our understanding. Ronnie, you got a question? Yeah, when the scripture says that behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, um, what we've studied earlier seems like the sins of the world are the cosmos, meaning everything. Is that right? Time interrupted thing. I don't, it's not like the sins of the world up to this point in time. And then we're on a fresh set of sins. Uh, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And he was aiming at a single once for all sacrifice. And it was going to have a manifestation throughout all the time. Um, at least that's how I see it. Yeah. Uh, it is the intention of the father, according to the scripture, that everybody's saved. But no, there's still a necessity to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, come on it seems to me it seems to me in reading this that this gift is offered universally to all mm -hmm. the, that Jesus took away the sins of the world cosmos if you will but we all have to accept that gift mm -hmm. so you can reject him as long as you choose to yeah I know I agree um, and, and every uh, and and when you talk about it being done for all and for the world, you're talking about the provision for it being done. In other words, that one visit that Jesus made with his own blood to, the, to heaven is the only visit necessary throughout all of the cosmos and time to, to, for sin to be forgiven. But yes, it doesn't take away the necessity for us to believe. But I wanted to, there's, it's interesting. Revelation gets read a lot of different ways, but yeah. there, there is some encouragement in it if, if, we, if you look for it. Oh, sure. 
Um, and it's interesting, in Revelation chapter 21, second to last chapter, it says that the gates of the, of the New Jerusalem are open, never mm-hmm. closed. And at the very ending, somebody pointed this out to me, at the ending of, of Revelation then, it talks about in 22.14, you know, blessed are those who wash their robes, they may have the right to the tree of life, may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the immoral persons, the murderers and idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. And then you got to read through to 17. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things to the churches. I am the root and the descendants of David, the bright morning star. But then it says in 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Mm-hmm. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. Well, it's interesting, depending how you, you read that in the tense, the only people who are outside are all those people doing evil things, the evil descriptions. But the gate can't be closed. Mm-hmm. And, and the invitation's not and withdrawn. And the invitation is almost the very it's, ending it's saying, not withdrawn. come. Yeah. So I don't know, someone pointed that out to me once, and it, it gave me great assurance. Cool. That no, I, I agree. And the, and the invitation, uh, what, what my point is, the invitation is based on the comprehensive nature of this work. That Jesus did. And not how would, something how else would we wash our robes other than in his blood? Yeah, there's so, only one source for that, I think. You. All right. We're angels fear to tread. It's time for worship. So that will leave you intensely satisfied, I'm sure. Uh, we won't go through those. Something I'd like you to ponder is that Jesus dealt with sin once for all. And he himself took up our sin to that heavenly altar. And that that is the only place that sin can be dealt with. The only place. And his once for all offering of putting him, of himself put away, didn't cover sin, didn't put it on hold the way it was put on hold through the atoning sacrifices annually. And lastly, his next appearing will be without reference to sin. Now, I don't know how to wrap my head around that, but I do know how to read and believe it. You ready? Ready? Okay. Awesome. Bless you guys. I appreciate the interaction and the questions. I love it.